Okay. Can everyone hear me okay? I'll take my mask off for this part. So I'm Jim Smith, and I apologize to the panel members. Uh, in the brochure, I got all the publicity with my picture, and all I did was organize this, and I'm not going to do any of the speaking. Uh, so, But I am going to start off by doing an introduction. Make sure we're... Uh-oh, we've got a problem already. Okay, let's see if it works now. Oh, okay. Okay, sorry about the uh, little bit of a hiccup there. I'm not very good with uh, this kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, so the idea for this session came out of last year. I attended two workshops, one on cultural competency and one on critical thinking. And as I thought about that and what we do in healthcare education overseas, I thought both of those are really very important. And so uh, I submitted this and oh, okay. Okay, let's start over again. Oops, I lost my lapel. I hope this isn't the way the whole thing's gonna go. So anyway, the objectives for this are uh, to understand how critical thinking and cultural competence relate to each other in a global setting. And certainly for all of you who have worked overseas, cultural competence is really a big thing. Use the strengths and weaknesses of rote memory and critical thinking to encourage student participation in the educational experience and be able to use this, these educational approaches in a culturally sensitive way. Uh, to make our healthcare education relevant and actionable in a global setting. So we have uh, six panel members. Uh, first of all, uh, Maggie Tarpley, Tarpley is going to be talking about cultural competence, cultural awareness, and sensitivity. Then Sherry Falkenheimer, who is the director for MEI, uh, is going to be talking about an introduction to critical thinking. Then we have uh, Rachel and Eric McLaughlin, who both work at a medical school in Burundi, and they'll tell you more about that. We'll be talking about it in relationship to medical student education. Uh, Kate, uh, for, for certain reasons of where she is, we aren't going to put her name here, but uh, she's going to be talking about working in a family medicine residency uh, in a creative access nation. And then we'll end up with Dr. John Tarpley, who will be talking about starting a new residency in an established medical school in Botswana. So uh, John was at, the, uh, at Vanderbilt, and then he went to Botswana and started this surgical program. So I think it will be an interesting discussion. Hopefully we'll be done with that, and we'll have at least 30 to 40 minutes for discussion and questions uh, with the panel when we finish with that. So we'll start off with uh, Maggie Tarpley, who is married to Dr. John Tarpley, and uh, by profession is a librarian, but worked a lot in the surgical department at Vanderbilt. So let's see if we can hook you up here. It will work as well. Hi, can everyone hear me fine speaking through the mask? Okay. Uh, you'll find out later uh, that there's more to come about masks. But anyway, um, I'm really talking, cultural competence is something that takes many years and a lot of time and energy. I think for short-term people, for people who are only going to be going for a few weeks or a few months, maybe even a year or two, I think it's better to talk about cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness, because that's something you can acquire 
in a short term. And uh, all of us can be sensitive and aware when we go into a new culture with humility, meaning we don't know everything. And humility was a big part of the plenary today. That, w- that word was mentioned any number of times and uh, is a, a wonderful word for understanding that we don't have all knowledge. One of my favorite educators in the world is Paulo Freire. He's not a North American. He was a Brazilian. He was teaching literacy to the uh, uh, indigenous people living in the rainforests of Brazil. And his idea, what he learned with his years there was learning is partnership, not a one-way transfer of information. Because he knew how to read. They didn't know how to read. But they knew how to survive in that environment, and he wouldn't have lasted three weeks on his own. So he was dependent on them to survive, and they were dependent on him to learn to read. So it was partnership, and I think that that's really a key as we look at cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness. And volunteer medical relationships are partnerships. They're not just one-way transfers of skills. We, we put a lot of emphasis now on education, and but that still means that we learn from them as well as we take our skills. And it starts with a sense of perceived need. If you're not culturally sensitive in St. Louis or Louisville or Nashville or New York or San Francisco, you're probably not going to be culturally sensitive when you get to Asia or Africa or uh South America. Here are these four degrees I'm going to go over quickly. Americans, my way is the only way. I know their way, but my way is better. My way and their way. And then we get to our way. And we celebrate diversity. We celebrate learning from them and with them. This is one of the most important slides that when we're sending residents and medical students and anybody, is nurturing a culture of respect. If your interaction with everyone, patients, families, colleagues, as well as staff, including environmental staff in these hospitals, if you're respectful of every single person, and another thing I tell my students is, you can't tell the head of the hospital from the environmental services people if they're in scrubs or if they're in a local shirt. They may look just alike. So you treat everybody with the same level of respect. Each culture is unique. Just because people look alike. In Asia, there are a number of different groups. But because to us Westerners, they may look similar, that does not mean they're culturally similar. Sharing a language doesn't make you similar. British, Americans, Nigerians... We all speak English, but our cultures are different. Sharing a nationality. Those of us here in the South, and Louisville, I count South, when we go to New York or California or Michigan, we, the culture is often different. And so just because we're from the United States does not make us the same. And sharing a religion does not mean cultural sensitivity. Christianity looks very different in Africa and Asia and South America than it may in Nashville or Louisville or Houston, Texas or uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan.
So comparing cultural norms and values, sense of space, communication and language is clearly becoming one of the areas that people are recognizing is a huge area of cultural sensitivity needs. Dress and appearance, food and eating habits, time and time consciousness. We actually make a lot of uh, fun sometimes. We go places, and they're not quite as prompt as we are. But do you know some languages don't even have a word for time? So we can't impose our Western mores on other cultures. Well, here we are again. Okay. Uh, it's not advancing. But this is my chance. This is cultural norms and values. Uh, I went downstairs and I took a picture of the uh, flags, posters that are at the entrance. If I... If you could see my phone, on that poster, it starts out with rules for COVID. I think all of you saw those posters. But to me, the takeaway message was not at the top in big letters. It was right in the middle. Masks are required for all attendees at this medical conference. Now, we're in Louisville, Kentucky. And we're in the United States. And, and sometimes we think that we can make our own interpretations of those kind of guidelines. But what if we were in Malawi? We lived in Botswana for three years. They had a very strict mask mandate. Everywhere you went, you couldn't go into a store. You couldn't go into a building. You had your temperature checked. And I had a man at the, I had a double mask, a shield and one of those pull-up masks. At the grocery store, my pull-up mask had fallen down. This little man came and tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, so I had to be double-masked if I had a shield. But that's another area of cultural sensitivity. So let me... Okay, the advancing is not working, but let me just talk. I have a couple of things. My slide set is going to be available for everything, everybody. It, no, nothing's happening. It's, uh, you keep talking, I'll see if I can Okay, all right, yes, yeah, sure. Because what I'm going to share, uh, because you're going to get my slide set anyway. There. So what I did was touch that. Oh. Okay. Okay, great. So this is a touch screen as well. It is, but this is the one you're talking on right yes, now. Yes, okay, okay. All right. So we've already talked about some of these. Uh, spiritual and religious issues, what, what fall under cultural sensitivity? Communications and interpersonal relations. End-of-life situations, you know, in some places it's against the law to withdraw care at the end of life. Delivering bad news. Some places you can't tell a patient they're approaching the end of life. Clothing, hairstyles, body ornaments, we, we all know about that. Gender issues and considerations, what's appropriate for men and women interactions. Age, respect, seniority. As you get older, many cultures respect you more. And um, discipline, correction, and training. I think this is one to really take away. Praise in public, critique in private. If you are overseas in any kind of situation, if you are here in Louisville or Dallas or San Francisco, don't ever shout or be uh, uh, hard on someone publicly. Take them aside. Do it privately. 
there's good data that a negative information, I just heard this on the public radio the other day, a negative interaction is five times more powerful than a positive interaction. And I'm sure overseas it's doubly that. They will never tell you, but if you say something negative in a, in a way that is perceived as uh, uh, not culturally sensitive, uh, they won't forget. Then informal and social interactions always ask individualism and equality. Oh, touch screen. Cool. All right. This is the iceberg concept of culture, and I'm not going to take you through all of this. I'm just going to say there's a lot of things that are visible and open to everybody that you see, such as age and gender and language. But there's so many things. The iceberg, 90% of it's below water, and so much of cultural interactions. And that's why cultural competence is a lifetime uh, pursuit. But cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity is something that you can learn to honor. Cultivating cultural humility, there's that word again. Looking at yourself, self-evaluation and self-critique. Redressing power imbalances and noticing them. Uh, when you're a visitor and you're from a place in the United States, you create a power imbalance just walking in that institution. And helping them see you as, e treating them as equal colleagues, not somebody big expert from the West, is critically important. And developing mutual benef mutually beneficial partnerships. This means, we call it getting to win-win. Whenever you're developing a relationship, doing volunteer work, whatever, you want to focus on what's the best for this host institution that you're going to visit, not what's best for you. You know how to turn the widget a certain way, and you may say, I want to come and turn my widgets. But what you need to do before you ever leave the states is you ask them, what is it that you need for me to do for you? And if you can do it, great. If you can't, you might want to think about another place of service. Okay, promoting, so uh, this is what we used to send with our residents. We, we had a program that started in 2011, sending our surgery residents to Kijabe, Kenya. And we would have an evening of cultural sensitivity awareness and et cetera with these residents. And we handed out a sheet. But the big thing was we told them, number one, to be respectful and always use good manners. Always use a title, Mr., Mrs., Dr., Professor, before they, if they tell you to use their first name, that's fine. But never start out addressing anyone by their being familiar. Remember always that you're a guest and they're a host. Greet them. Most cultures really want you. Now, I know that there are cultures where it's not proper to greet every single person as you move around. But in many places in Africa, that's critically important to acknowledge, greet, Hello, and let me tell you something to do in America. When you're in the hall sometime in the hospital or your school, say hi to your colleague and then say, how's your family? 
I can almost guarantee you they will stop. And I hope you're not in a hurry. If you ask anybody about their family, they're going to whip out their cell phone. They're going to look for the latest pictures of their dog or their wife or their kids or somebody to share with you. It's powerful. And in Africa, these interactions are very powerful. When in doubt, ask. Nobody ever minds you asking if something is appropriate. Dress appropriate. Try the local foods and make a Kenyan friend. This was for our residents. But make a friend wherever you go. All right, I'm gonna, not going to spend time with these, but these are two very recent articles that have come out from the host perspective. Not how is it we do when, what do we feel like when we go to these places? This is what, what do they feel about us when we show up? And this one is from a secular perspective, local staff perceptions and expectations of international visitors in global surgery rotations. Local staff felt that visitors were beneficial to their faculty and facility in providing research and education and increasing clinical care capacities. However, the rest of the story, more than 40% perceived a negative effect with visitors imposing their medical concepts into these local practices. This other one just came out a few weeks ago, Ghanaian views of short-term medical missions, pros, cons, possibilities for improvement. Not understanding the local customs and culture, you can always ask. Treating local health professionals as less knowledgeable than volunteers, even about local diseases. Language difficulties, over and over. This communications is so important. And lack of respect for governmental regulations, this is another talk. Many places, it turned out in these places, the hospitals didn't know there were regulations about volunteer physicians. Places we go, you have to get temporary licenses, medical licenses. You always need to check. Partly, that's showing respect for that country and its laws, and I think that's part of cultural sensitivity. This is an article we did, oh, 10 or 15 years ago, with a lot of suggestions. But the biggest one is don't ever criticize in the hospital. Don't criticize your accommodations. Don't criticize the food. Don't criticize the climate, the political situation. Just be positive. And I'm going to send this slide set out to you. You can find all of these articles. Maintaining a good attitude, being flexible, not comparing outcomes in that hospital to outcomes in your hospital in America. Don't talk about how much this trip is costing you. Uh, and don't make a lot of suggestions. We told our residents, even if they ask you, how can we do this better, you tell them, oh, you are doing the best you can in this situation. We are very happy to be working here with you. I told them they were not allowed to give advice. That you don't know enough. Well, here are the two R words, relationships and respect. And, oh, and this is a wonderful chart. The golden rule is across all faith systems. Do not do to others what you do not want them done to you.
Okay. Well, that was very good.
And there's a great demand for it. This is old data, as you can see. But I think it's a good example, you know, of uh, 21,000 healthcare and 6,700 management positions posted uh, a few years ago. Those all mention critical thinking as a requirement for the job. So it's in demand as well. And I want to be sure you know what critical thinking is not. It's not critical theory. We've all heard a lot about that these days. Uh, critical theory has to do with power and power differences. That's not what we're talking about. It doesn't mean criticizing others and being a critical person. And uh, it does mean uh, that you can think. It doesn't mean you can necessarily think in a critical situation, but you can think critically in all situations. One issue I mentioned is memorization and regurgitating. And uh, actually, one of Jim's students some years ago, uh, he was working in an Asian country, and uh, the person said, you know, I can make the diagnosis, but I can't really tell you how I made it or why I made it. And if you don't understand why that's the diagnosis, you're not able to think critically about it, and you're really kind of stuck. And uh, as we already talked about Different patterns occur in different people. So this is a definition of critical thinking. Uh, the bottom is kind of the short definition, being able to ask good questions in what you're doing and uh, what, what the data shows, what the patient's telling you. But uh, you can read the description, and it will probably make you think it looks a lot like uh, the scientific method, which it does. And you can't think critically if you don't know anything. I mean, you can't uh, figure out what disease if you have no idea of what are diseases of the gastrointestinal system, to use the example about the stomach pain. So you have to know something, and it's important to memorize and learn things, but it's not enough. So it involves, uh, you know, being able to take what you know and put it together in different ways and contrast it with different situations and try to come up with the best explanation for what you're seeing. And I already mentioned this, but this is basically what critical thinking is. You know, we, you observe, you analyze, you interpret the data, evaluate, solve the problem, make a decision, and provide treatment and explanation. So it's really not rocket science, but it doesn't come natural. And in a lot of parts of the world, you're actually discouraged from critical thinking. They have sayings, like there's one in uh, one part of Asia that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. You know, you're not encouraged to ask questions because it may cause the uh, speaker to lose face or imply they weren't clear, and uh, you might, you know, embarrass them. So there are a lot of those kinds of cultural issues that, you know, aren't as common to us. We're taught from childhood to start thinking critically and ask questions and things, so... Uh, it can be hard for people to move from that sort of knowledge-based rote memory to applying this to different conditions and things they see. And it's biblical. You know, uh, Phil was talking a lot this morning about the importance of your mind. Uh, Romans 12, 1, 2, 2, I think we're all very familiar with. The way we become more like Christ and uh, learn truth is to renew our minds. And uh, Paul modeled a lot of the things we also heard. I didn't know he was going to say those things. But, you know, intellectual humility, integrity, courage, and empathy. So it's a biblical thing to do if people say, well, 
you know, I read the Bible and it says this and that's the end of it. They need to, we all need to, you know, be able to take what it says and apply it to our culture and our situation, just like in healthcare. And uh, I wanted to just kind of give a quick summary of the difference between knowledge-based and understanding-based. You know, the novice speaker, the novice uh, thinker just relies on the facts, the protocols, the rules, and uh, they really don't know what to do when uh, it's not clear. And that's partly because they tend to lack experience. Hopefully this doesn't proceed throughout their whole career, but uh, they don't know what to do when things aren't, aren't clear, where a more experienced clinician uh, has better understanding, hopefully they understand why that's the diagnosis in the algorithm, not just that arrows point to it, and what physiology is involved, what treatments would be involved. And they use the rules to guide them, but not to be rigid and something they can't work outside of. So, uh, you know, they're able to adapt when something unusual comes up. And these are uh, the kinds of questions that uh, people should ask. I won't read them to you. I'll give you a minute. But I think you can see they're the kinds of questions that will help you evaluate the situation and make a better decision. Another one I, I kind of like is to just ask the patient, what do you think is wrong and why? We often forget to ask the patient. And you can use just these three questions, you know, as a start, if you're new at it or if you're teaching critical thinking, help them to first say to themselves, what else could this be? Does this have to be this one thing on the algorithm or what, what else is similar? And is there anything that doesn't fit that box that we need to consider? And then we, we tend to want to have the simplest solution and pick one illness, but sometimes people really have two or three things going on. So ask, you know, could there be more than one thing going on? And this is a brief case study just to give a little application. Uh, there's a 16-year-old sexually active high school student who was in good health until this morning and had a sudden sharp pain in her abdomen in the right lower quadrant, which is worse, uh, getting worse uh, as time goes on. She has no recent injury or pain like this and a little bit of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So what's the diagnosis? What's the thing you would think about most? Appendicitis, right. So a novice thinker goes, oh, this is appendicitis. But not everything that hurts in this part of your abdomen is appendicitis. So if you don't think beyond it's appendicitis, you can easily miss other serious and even life-threatening conditions where a critical thinker will say, well, this sounds like appendicitis. It could be appendicitis, but I need to think of other things that could be really serious or need treatment that can cause that kind of pain, too. You know, maybe they have a, a ectopic pregnancy, which is bleeding, can kill them from bleeding out. Uh, they may have a pelvic inflammatory disease from a sexually transmitted disease that needs uh, medication, not surgery. Uh, you know, it could be they have Crohn's disease or a tumor of their uh, large bowel, their colon, and uh, or an ovarian condition. So... That's really a quick view of the difference between critical thinking and uh, 
someone who's a novice thinker and can't think critically. So I won't belabor it. I just wanted to do a quick and dirty for you so you can hear some good stories of people doing critical thinking in the real world. Okay, thank you very much, Sherry. Uh, so that is a good segue into we'll now be hearing some personal experiences, and we're going to start off with Rachel and Eric McLaughlin, who work at a medical school in Burundi. You can pass that back and forth. Yeah, sure. I'm rather terrified of your computer now. Oh, I, look. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having this part done when we get to the panel, so I don't have to worry about this. <laughs> So we can, so, we can touch you. Yeah, so you touch that seemed to be the best way to go. Right. So, okay. Yeah, okay, great. So yeah. So this is uh, Eric and Rachel McLaughlin. Uh, they'll tell you about their experience. <laughs> All right. So I'm an OBGYN, and Sherry, that was definitely an ectopic pregnancy. I have to say. <laughs> so. <laughs> We also think more along the lines of our own specialties, I suppose. So I'm an OBGYN, and um, I've been uh, practicing since uh, I finished residency in 2009, and Eric's a family practice doctor. Uh, we uh, went to first to Tenwick Hospital in Kenya for two years with Samaritan's Purse uh, with our team. We did not go just our family, but we went with two other families at the same time to pursue medical missions in community. And it was when we were at uh, Tenwick Hospital that we really honed our vision of wanting to do not only medical work, but specifically education. Uh, Kenya, uh, Tenwick Hospital had a lot of uh, student education going on at the time. There were medical students, there were residents family practice, and surgery, um, and we really caught the vision for that. And so when we were looking at where we wanted to go long-term, uh, we found an opportunity in Burundi, which is a tiny little country in East Africa. You can see it on the map there. Uh, we found a hospital, Kabuye Hope Hospital, that was about 70 years old, had been started by missionaries, but had just recently uh, re-engaged a partnership with a new medical school called Hope Africa University. And they had uh, this university, they had students, but they didn't have clinical teaching faculty. And so along with the rest of our team, which has now grown to over 10 physicians, um, and we have over 20 Burundian doctors working at the hospital as well, uh, we work to primarily uh, teach medical students in addition to improving patient care. We started an internship program as well, so uh, once students finish uh, and graduate from medical school, usually they don't have any other training opportunities. And so we have, for the last several years, offered a one-year internship in a, a, various, a variety of specialties. And we're also hopeful that uh, in the next year or so we'll be starting a surgery training program and also eventually a family practice training program as well. Um, what's exciting, too, is uh, the little uh, diagram on the lower left there. When we arrived in Burundi, there were only 300 doctors for a population of about 10 million people. And Eric just uh, found some new data. Uh, even It's a little bit outdated, even. So in 2017, that number had increased from 300 to 1,000 doctors. And so we still have a long way to go. But it's been exciting to be part of uh, training more physicians uh, for a country. So the 
All right, so this one is the one that's going to make my voice louder, right? Okay, and this is the recording one. So um, we're, we're here with the, with the goal of kind of looking at how to develop critical thinking and, and work to promote critical thinking in a way that works for the cultural context that's not our own, okay? So I had been to sessions kind of similar to this one, uh, probably even at this conference prior to landing in Kenya, and heard many, many times about how educational systems in different parts of the world, you know, don't teach people how to critically think. And then I came to Kenya... And I was like, here's these really smart, critically thinking Kenyans. Like, you know, what's what's going on here? Like they, you know, so I think it's, it's worth begging the question, like, is this, is this really true experientially that people don't know how to critically think or they're not trained how to critically think? So I was kind of doubtful. So, I, you know, I was there in Kenya and I said, well, let me ask one of my friends who's a good example of this and get her opinion on it. So in this picture here is Dr. Matilda Ngondi. She's an internist hematologist, and she was at, at Tenwick when I was there. Uh, now she's at the University of Nairobi. And I said, Matilda, you know, people talk about this all the time, about critical thinking. Like, you know how to critically think. Like, what do you think about this? And she said, it is true. Kenyans don't know how to critically think. And I said, again, Matilda, like, you are a Kenyan, and you know how to critically think. And she's like, yes, I learned it from the missionaries. I swear to you, that's what she said to me. And I was floored by that. I said, really? She said, yeah, my, my whole experience growing up through education in medical school is rote memorization. And when I came here to do a medical student rotation, when she came to Tenwick to do a medical student rotation, she's like, I found people that were thinking in a different way that I had never learned before. Uh, and it made a great deal with me of learning how to approach these situations. So from Dr. Matilda, there you go. There you have it. Um, what, what do I decide from that? Like 12 years into living in Africa, Africans do know how to critically think very well. Um, if you look at uh, a complicated social situation in which they find themselves, their ability to navigate these situations and think, well, if I do this, then it's going to have all these implications, and so we need to manage this and whatever else is excellent, far better than my own. And so I have come to the conclusion that when we talk about critical thinking education and medicine, it's not teaching people to do something they don't know how to do. I think it's teaching them that this capacity that you have can be applied to your academic discipline in a way that your educational system up until now hasn't really prioritized or modeled for you in a lot of ways. So that's kind of setting the stage for that. All right. Um, traditional medical education. So when we came, our, our medical school at Hope Africa University started in 2007, and they basically uh, copied and modified a little bit the curriculum that was given to them by the National University that had been in place for a long time. So... That being said, I, th I think our experience with our medical school is fairly normative because for government regulations and everything, we all kind of work from the same curriculum. Um, in fact, a lot of the professors that were teaching us were adjunct professors that were also professors at the other medical schools. Um, many courses were taught intensively, so they would say, like, right now we're doing cardiology. We're going to do it every day for three weeks. And then very interestingly, uh, and so the professors actually would give a, a syllabus to the students, like a big photocopy thing. They would, they would listen to the course, they'd take notes, what have you. The course would finish, and then they would negotiate with the student body, the student class president, as to when they were going to take their exam. And one of the things I've learned is that if you let the students decide when they're going to take their exam, the answer is going to be later. <laughs> later yeah, later, which becomes, which becomes much later, actually. And we had situations where people were taking exams a year after they had taken a three-week intensive course. So what does that mean? Do they remember anything? Of course not. And do they know they're not going to remember? You know, like, the whole course structure then is like, I'm not actually going to get tested on this for a year, right? So anyway, there were some issues there. Um, and and, and that's, been, that's been modified in our school now. 
Uh, and then practical experience is little to no laboratory exposure for a whole host of reasons. It's a very, very difficult thing to develop. So uh, we would sometimes be responsible because people were taking exams later when they were with us at Kibuye, uh, they would hand us an exam and say, your students are going to take this exam next week for a course they took, you know, six months ago. And so I've gotten to see some exams. And here is an example of an exam, final exam for the course. Pathophysiology of rheumatic heart disease, treatment of ischemic heart disease. Now, what strikes you about that? One, there's only two questions. And two, they're actually not questions. <laughs> like, what is, what is that? Like, what do you mean, treatment of ischemic heart disease? And the answer is, that's a subject heading in the syllabus. If you can regurgitate it 100%, you get 100%. Uh, if you regurgitate it at 50%, you get 50%. And it was quite objective, actually, but it wasn't necessarily helpful in learning. So what are the, in fact, we just had a student, a graduate of ours, who went to another country in West Africa, uh, another country in West Africa last week, and took an entry exam into their internal medicine residency, and it was this, except there were three questions. It was exactly this. And so, you know, this is, I feel justified in, in making my generalizations here. Um, so what is this? 100% rote memory equals 100% evaluation. So there's a lack of understanding. There's a lack of application. The system does not encourage those things. There's also massive forgetting. Because you can really cram well with this, but, you know, I will talk to my students and, like, you took a whole course on X, and yet, you know, so much of it has been, has been forgotten. So what we want to do for a few minutes here is Rachel and I kind of reflected, and we came up with this list of five things uh, that are innovations that we have found helpful as we try to navigate this situation and promoting critical thinking uh, in a culturally competent way in our setting. Yeah, so we'll just spend a few minutes talking about each one of these uh, things that we put into practice and have found uh, to be beneficial in the education of our students. So first of all, weekly quizzes and clinical scenarios. So obviously, as we, we all remember from medical school, it is sometimes necessary to memorize things. Um, and yet, if you just memorize something five minutes before you take the test, then you will probably forget it five minutes after the test is done. The way to memorize lists is to kind of circle back to that list again and again. So, for example, I want my students to know the treatment of postpartum hemorrhage. I want them to be able to recite the list of medications and doses that they can give because that moment is not the time to go and look up something on the Internet because there's you know, a woman is, is bleeding to death. And the Internet's really slow. Oh, <laughs> right. So, and that's going to take a long time. So beat the cram. By the idea of instead of cramming all of this information that you need to learn at the very end, um, we've done weekly quizzes. So I developed an obstetrics course while I was there. And every Monday before we started lecture, we would have a quiz on the information from the week before. And that went on for about eight weeks. And then we would take a test on the material as well. And so students are very tempted always to delay. Procrastination is sort of always the name of the game. And so if we can encourage people to study all along the way um, and have motivation to do that, uh, a quiz score that will affect their final grade, then it's forced the students to be studying all the way through. Also, you saw the test questions that Eric put up here. Our students actually had a hard time at the, in the beginning, and probably still do to some extent, applying that knowledge. And so we would ask a clinical question about, you know, the 16-year-old girl with right lower quadrant pain. And a classic question in my medical education is, 
what is the first step or what is the next step or something like that. And so you have to make the diagnosis and then you have to decide what the next step is. Knowing the diagnosis isn't what they're asking on the test. Um, and so that stepwise process, uh, we started to introduce clinical scenarios before and after each lecture as well to not just give them a list, but like this lady actually has a postpartum hemorrhage right now. What should we be doing? And helping the students think through that and then putting those um, scenarios also in, in the test, which shows me not only that they've memorized the information, but that they can apply it. Another thing, uh, my field in particular is a very hands-on sort of a field. Memorizing lists, knowing a series of diagnosis, diagnoses isn't, isn't always enough. You have to be able to uh, manage the emergency when it comes, a breech delivery, a shoulder dystocia, uh, postpartum hemorrhage, things like that. And so we developed, uh, uh, with the help of my colleague, Dr. Logan Banks, we developed a, a simulator part of the course. And so not only did we do lectures, uh, but we had several sessions that were several hours long where the students would have a model of the uterus and a baby, and we would walk them through, this is how you do a breech delivery. This is how you manage a shoulder dystocia. This is how you manage a retained placenta, things like that. And they also had to demonstrate competency in, this, in these areas as well. So we did a practical exam. Now, I know simulators are, are a big thing in the U.S. now. It's becoming more and more popular. We don't have the finances to develop a huge multi-million dollar simulator lab. And so we bought these models from Lairdal Global for about $150 a piece. And, you know, they're not fancy, but they do the trick. And you can see the students actually had a great time because they were actually doing hands-on things. They felt like they were developing skills that they needed to be a doctor. So they had a blast with that. And we're continuing to find more uses. We also use the baby models for helping babies breathe to teach neonatal resuscitation and things like that. All right, so number three out of five, uh, one of the other things that has been helpful for promoting critical thinking has been uh, a journal club. So one of our more recent additions to our team, a, a US pediatrician came and, and she had this idea. And so once a week or maybe twice a month, uh, she will pick out an article and she'll send it to all of the students and they get together and they discuss it. You guys probably know journal club, right? So um, this, is, this is very revolutionary. Um, this is not something that's normally done. The whole idea of finding an article and analyzing it, like generally when, when you haven't been exposed to critical thinking in your education, you tend towards an idea that the knowledge that you've been handed down is like written in the medical Bible somewhere. Um, and and, and there's, a, there's a gap between understanding that all this information that's in the book came from a series of either, in some cases, clinical experience and expert opinion, but in a lot of other situations based on studies that were done, right? And so uh, sitting down and actually looking at how a study was done, and this is, this is very basic kind of like evidence-based medicine stuff, but even just asking the question, seeing that the study was done, and then saying, what are the implications of this information? Since this happened in the experiment, what would that mean? Some of the stuff that Bert Lee was kind of talking about this morning, right? Um, has been really, really helpful. And it also is a really great way to introduce them to a number of, I think, critical thinking uh, concepts. So for the example, for example, like talking about specificity and sensitivity of a diagnostic test, uh, it is very much a very needed critical thinking concept for anyone who's going to be using these diagnostic tests. Instead of saying, this is the test for X, of saying, well, this test is 80% sensitive and 90% specific for this test, helps you understand that there are nuances to the patient that is before me, and I'm not going to understand them or know what to do with them unless I understand some of these more complex ideas that are there. 
So Journal Club and exploring medical literature together has been a, a way of promotion of, of critical thinking that's been well received in our context. This was a really interesting one. So um, we we teach a lot of courses, and one of them was ethics. And so myself and um, Alyssa, one of our teammates, we, we put together a series of we were like we want we want uh, ethics cases that that fit our context and that we've we've encountered ourselves. And so we came up with ten cases that are basically situations that we've encountered. And we, we can look at a couple of them here. So. Uh, the first one there, I, sh I should read it because it's a bit small. You're the only doctor present at a rural hospital who just admitted a pregnant woman at 38 weeks gestation with a hemorrhage. You suspect previa. Fetal heart tones are 170. You're new at this hospital. You're being trained to do a C-section. Up until now, you've only observed several times, but you've never done one alone. The patient's blood pressure is 70 over 30. She continues to bleed despite every other intervention. It takes three hours to get to the next nearest hospital that can do a C-section. The ambulance is available. Do you transfer the woman or try to save her life by doing a C-section alone? This is really real for a lot of places in Africa. They are in a situation where they are not able to do what needs to be done for someone uh, from the sense of having the competency that anyone in this room would probably feel is necessary to do it. And so the idea is here, I mean, this is kind of, in, in a bioethics discussion, this is kind of pitting beneficence against non-maleficence, if you're familiar with kind of these terms. So what does this mean? Like from a critical thinking standpoint, and you can kind of read the other one. They're, they're really interesting cases. But from a critical thinking standpoint, we have to work with abstract principles in ethics. And so when we bring these things up and we say what principles are at play, who is being affected, you know, whose who's justice or whose beneficence or whose whatever is, is at play here, and how does that interact with someone else's autonomy or justice, et cetera, uh, it is a very useful tool to get them to start thinking critically and abstractly about some of these things. In addition, these discussions are just awesome. Like, they are so useful in learning more about the culture that you were in. Like, I, it's, it's a really fun every time we get together with it, and I learn a, a ton of things from that. So then finally, uh, modeling. And this is a lot of, you know, what I think Maggie and Sherry were kind of were talking about here. There's no replacement for doing critical thinking uh, together. And this is what my friend Matilda in Kenya was saying as well. So being there together and, and talking through situations with people on a daily basis is the best way to sort of talk about this. And a lot of the great questions that Sherry had in her slides about, you know, why is that the diagnosis that you want to consider? What are the other things that could be done uh, are really helpful. Um, we have a great opportunity to model humility in a way that promotes critical thinking by saying, I don't know. Like That is shocking to a lot of the people that we have encountered, the professor that says, I don't know, and then especially if you follow it up with, but I'll find out. And then the next day you come to them and you say, here's the information that I found, and we look at this together. Like This is a really great way to, to teach. And with this sort of part 5B here, resource limitation. Resource limitation creates opportunities for critical thinking. You have to think hard about your patients when they, you'd like to get five diagnostic tests, but you're only going to get one. Which one is it going to be forces you to hypothetically work through about seven steps ahead about what's going to change your, your management for this. And doing that together with other people uh, really provides a great opportunity to, to practice critical thinking uh, with them. All right, so that's it. We have another slide that says... Integrating critical thinking into medical education is a valuable way that many Westerners can contribute abroad if done in culturally competent ways. Critical thinking is different. It's something that's not already there. I'm convinced that it's one of the, it's one of the really good blessings that, um, that people trained in other circumstances can bring to the table. 
you may, in certain situations, want to work on tweaking teaching methods uh, and then take advantage of the context of resource limitation to involve your learners uh, in everyday critical thinking and learning opportunities. Thanks. Thank you, Eric and Rachel. Uh, I particularly enjoyed that because, along with two other ENT doctors, we actually did a remote teaching of ENT for 12 sessions. And then we gave them a multiple-choice question uh, exam, which I think really threw them because they weren't used to that. <laughs> Plus, it was not only the multiple-choice question, it was uh, one of the multiple-choice questions with uh, clinical application. I'm sure all of you people who have Macs are saying, why is he doing that with a surface? So this is yeah. Dr. Kate, and uh, she's going to be talking about her experience. Well, thank you. It's good to be here today, and it's been actually really exciting to hear the plenary this morning um, with data and really about critical thinking and how that is applied and, um, and then listening already to what we've heard this morning. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of how we teach critical thinking um, in a family medicine residency setting. So I work in the Horn of Africa, which is on the east coast of Africa. It's a conglomeration of about five or six countries, depending on how you count. Um, and um, we are in partnership there with the local university and then um, Hope Partnership International. So we are Hope Family Medicine, um, not related to Hope Medical School in Burundi, but Hope is a good thing um, for Africa. So our program opened um, in November of 2012. Since that time, by the end of this month, we'll have 34 graduates. 32 of them are still in the country, um, working in all different sectors of, of um, the healthcare system. I joined um, as a faculty member in 2014, so I've been there for a little while. But as I um, tell you about how we teach critical thinking in family medicine, I need to explain to you a little bit of our framework of how we do family medicine education. We are the, um, I would say, only, we're not the only postgraduate training program, but we're the only functional postgraduate training program that actually has graduated doctors who are actually working in the country at a high level of medical care, um, and I don't say that as a matter of pride, but just practically that's the way it is. Um, so I'll explain to you just a little bit about our framework of family medicine education. Just like here in the United States um, and in Canada, it is a three-year um, three training program um, where we have the residents um, six days a week, um, day and night, and, you know, it's three years like residency. Um, we have a values-based education system, so 
We work in an area where the country is 100% Muslim, but we have a values um, system that we didn't develop, but we borrowed freely from um, another program in another country where we can agree as as Muslim um, residents and now Muslim faculty members who we've trained and followers of Jesus Christ, we can agree on what these values are. So they are um, patients first, respect, integrity, um, stewardship, lifelong learning, excellence, and sanctity of life. So despite our worldview differences, despite our very different cultural differences um, and our very different religious um, views, um, we can agree on those um, as those are as the basis of the educational system. One of the main things we do through three years, this is probably the most important thing we do through the three years, is teach them how to ask good questions, okay? Their entire educational system before they get to us was rote memorization. Um, so they're really, really good at memorizing. So if they ask me a question about the pathophysiology of some organ system that it's been 15 years since I read the textbook and another student starts answering about what the textbook says, I don't argue because they haven't memorized. It's been, you know, probably at least seven or eight years since I've read that section of the textbook, if not longer. Um, so they're really, really good at memorizing but they don't know how to ask good questions, okay? In school, they were not allowed to ask good questions. It's shameful to ask good questions. You may have, in the madrasa particularly, you were punished if you were asked good questions or asked any question, never mind good questions. And so teaching them how to ask questions, starting simple, like how do you get an accurate history from the patient um, is, you know, starting out simply and then asking um, more and more questions from there. So it's definitely a three-year process. Um, the other thing that is new to them is the evaluation process. So they're used to having exams and just regurgitating on their exam and then expecting 100%. Well, what happens at the end of your first month when, um, or actually even before your first month, at the end of your first week of your very first rotation in first year, you sit down with the attending who says to you, um, what did you do well this week? Well, everything. <laughs> You know, that's always the answer. Well, what is one thing that you can prove? Well, I can improve on everything. I did everything really, really well. And then starting to give them a little bit of feedback. Well, maybe you could have done this differently. Or, you know, what about your senior resident who might mention something you can do differently? This is, this is shocking to them. And then at the end of the month when they get handed a written evaluation on how they did, things they did well, things they can improve on, um, this, every single time, even though we tell them from orientation this is coming, it's a complete look of shock and utter despair and complete shame. We don't do it because we're trying to shame them. We tell them from the beginning it's because we want you to become excellent doctors that we're doing this and do it very small piecemeal over time. But that's a process that has to be learned. Well, not only is it a process that you have to learn how to receive evaluation, but then we start teaching them how to do self-evaluation and how to reflect. And then by the time their third year, start to reflect about the healthcare system around them and what possible changes could be made. So that's also a piece that's really related to learning how to ask questions. And then we get to the critical thinking part. 
of, um, of medicine. So the way that we teach critical thinking is, yes, we look at medical literature and learn how to evaluate articles and things like that, but the major part of it is just day-to-day, how do we do critical thinking? So I'm going to go through some of the steps of critical thinking that we tend to teach and give you very small examples of how that is. So the first one is learning to identify assumptions behind an argument. So, for example, if the hospital... um, medical director says that every woman who's had a C-section has to have three days of post-op antibiotics. That's the rule. That's what we have to do. Why is he making that statement? And that's what we're going to have to do. Does he think it's going to improve outcomes for moms? Does he think that's going to decrease our dehiscence rate? You know, why is he saying that? So we have to, before we can go and approach him and say, um, Maybe that's not the best idea. You have to understand what his assumptions are because he's certainly not going to tell you. He's already made the statement, this is what we're going to do. And the fact that you're questioning him is a bit odd, not a bit odd. It's absolutely countercultural. Um, but you have to, even to be able to start to dialogue with him why that might not be the best idea, you have to know his assumptions behind his statement. We have to learn how and teach our residents how to recognize um, really important relationships. So we had this situation in 2015 where all of a sudden um, we started having young healthy men and second trimester pregnant women coming in in respiratory distress who were dead within 48 hours of their first sign of illness. What's the relationship between young healthy men and second trimester pregnant women? And why were they dying in 48 hours? This was kind of shocking to us, as you can imagine. Well, as we started to ask more questions, we realized the relation, they, weren't, they weren't related to each other. They weren't in the same family. They weren't in the same neighborhood. We realized they were all either herding sick camels or milking sick camels. And then, through a process of elimination, um, realized that they had Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome um, and, and then was able to make the diagnosis um, and go from there. But we had to sort of figure out what was the important relationship with the information that we had. The next thing we need to do is make correct inferences, not references, inferences from the data. Um, so we have lots of patients with strokes and diabetes and hypertension and things like that. There is a ton of medical information um, published on how these patients with cardiovascular diseases and diabetes should be treated. Does that mean every piece of information that's printed, that is that um, is that true for our patient and our patient population? Or how do we interpret the data to know what is good for our patients and actually what doesn't apply to our patients at all, even though our patients may have diabetes or may have heart disease? The next thing we need to do is, and we teach our residents, is how to draw conclusions from the data provided and taking a look at the data and seeing what is provided and taking a look at the data and seeing what's actually not provided. Because if you're making conclusions off of things that actually the data doesn't say, then you're going to come to the wrong conclusion and make the wrong application to your patient. So the other thing that you have to do is when you have a conclusion, the merit of your conclusion is based on your actual available information and how good is that information that's available. So therefore, you have to look at the credibility and the source of where your information comes from. 
For example, if you're going to take care of a patient with COVID, um, is your information coming from Dr. Google? Is it coming from your next door neighbor? Is it coming from the, you know, lay midwife down the street from you who happens also to be your great aunt? Is it coming from up to date? Well, there's great information on up to date about COVID-19 and how to take care of your patients. But even if it comes from up to date, does it apply to what we have and what we're seeing? And does it apply to outcomes that, you know, are even important to our patients. So learning how to identify just not only the conclusions, but what is the, what is the source of that conclusion and what is the validity of it, and particularly in our context. And then the really, really important piece of critical thinking is if you're able to do all of this thinking, if you can't make self-corrections, if you can't say, oh, I was wrong about that, or this is not how I understood it before this time, and, and then sort of change the way that you um, take care of a certain subset of patients or the way that you think about a certain illness or what you thought you knew about a medicine or didn't know about a medicine. If you can't make those self-corrections, then sort of the rest of the work um, has been wasted. Well, with critical thinking, um, what I have found is teaching family medicine and teaching critical thinking, because as I said, you know, we work in a population that's 100% Muslim. This really has lent itself to gospel proclamation um, as I've put the two together over the years that I've been there. So let me explain a little bit. First of all, we have a three-year training program, and lots of life happens, and our lives intersect with those of our residents on multiple levels. We had a um, resident one time who needed um, an emergency C-section. And in that process of that emergency C-section, her baby died. Well, in the culture where I work, grieving over a dead child is sinful because if you're grieving over a dead child, you're questioning Allah's will, Allah's will that that child was going to die, and therefore you're sinning. I myself have witnessed, not this resident, but another woman who in the process of delivery, you know, I'm still finishing up the delivery, telling the mother that the child has died, she's starting to tear up in her eye, and her mother-in-law comes and slaps her across the face and tells her not to grieve because she's sinning. Like to us as Americans, that's shocking. But that was like completely acceptable to everyone else in the room. Well, on the other hand, now I have a resident who has become a friend since then and now is a colleague who has a baby who died unexpectedly during labor, and she did lots of grieving in the presence of myself and some of my other teammates who are here in this room because it was we were a safe place for her to grieve because you can't say that that's not painful. But now she um, does a lot of obstetric work herself, and so when she has a mom has a baby who dies, she sits down on the bed, she asks about that, she finds out how the mom's doing, completely has transformed sort of how she takes care of moms who have babies who have passed. Um, we have a values-based education, and, and um, so um, with, with this, like even if we're having disagreements about um, things that are issues of, of faith or maybe even of ethics um, or of what we believe, the one thing about having the educational system based on values is that we can always come back to similar values. It's always a place of common um, belief and, and um, understanding that we can always come back to. By teaching them how to ask for good questions, we're also teaching them how to seek truth, how to find out what is truth. What you've maybe told the entire time in medical school about this disease through rote memorization may or may not be true. 
what you may have been instructed in the mosque and the madrasas about what is true about God may or may not be true, and then how, how do you even start to look for truth? The self-evaluation and reflection piece, um, that um, forces the residents to start to do an internal dialogue. How do they know what is true? How do they know what they can believe? The sources that they're using for looking for information, yes, um, medical sources, but now also um, sources of faith and things like that. How do they know that's true? And so starting and initiating an internal dialogue. And then with the idea of having the um, learning and knowing how to cr critically think, it gives them some of those tools to start to evaluate their own faith and their own beliefs. Now, does that mean that by the end of residency, all of our residents um, become believers and followers of Jesus Christ? No. Actually, that has happened zero times so far. But we have also have um, residents who and, and graduates who are continuing to seek and continuing to learn and continuing to read and continuing to pray, continue to come and ask us questions. The one thing, um, the one huge benefit of working in a small country is we still have relationships with all 34 graduates, um, even the two that are no longer in the country. Um, we still interact with them on a regular basis, some of them still on a daily basis. You know, our, our um, relationship with them doesn't end on graduation night but continues forward. You know, this is a place that doesn't have um, very much of a gospel witness, um, but through, through the process of, of education and critical thinking, we've, um, we have seen tremendous growth um, in, in some of these things. So um, that's what I have to say at this point, um, and there'll be time for questions then, I think, at the end. So... So I was asked to speak on uh, starting a re new residency program in an established medical school uh, in Botswana. Uh, I took that on for a variety of reasons with a lot of fear and trepidation. Uh, I have no financial disclosures of note or conflict of interest except I'm a kind of a global enthusiast. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, that's made a lot of difference for me. Botswana is actually in southern Africa, and it's on either side of the Tropic of Capricorn. So to the north, it's in the tropics. To the south, where we lived in Habarone, uh, it's in the temperates. It's a flat. A lot of the, There's a Kalahari Desert in the middle. Uh, so there, it's the size of France, uh, and yet it's only got 2.3 million people. Uh, and if you, you can see down around uh, 5 o'clock, there's a city called Habarone. And uh, it's uh, right on the border with South Africa, where we lived, was 20 kilometers uh, from the South African border. Uh, there's some books and movies that you can see about Botswana. Uh, one, it's a little bit politically incorrect, called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Uh, and it's a terrific movie. Uh, 
Uh, there's a movie and a book called A Marriage of Inconvenience, and this is about the person who led us to independence in 1966, uh, Sir Kama. Uh And more recently, Alexander McCall Smith, who is a, a Scottish lawyer, actually, who came to Botswana from Zimbabwe. Uh, and taught at the University of Botswana Law School, has got about four different series of detective novels, but the number one ladies detective agency actually shares a lot of useful information about Botswana. Uh, so population 2.3 million, about the size of France, almost as big as Texas. Uh, the gross national income per capita is 7.7 thousand, which puts them in the high middle income bracket which has advantages and a lot of disadvantages. Life expectancy, 69 years. And the Gini Index is something I learned once I got there, but this is, uh, comes from 1912 from an Italian uh, uh, sociologist, and it talks about the spread between the haves and the have-nots. And a good number is low, and that would be in Scandinavia and some other places. U.S. is in the 40s and 50s, and there are like six or seven countries that are above 60, and that's bad, and most of them are in southern Africa, and that's Botswana. So I saw more Mercedes and BMWs and Jaguars and Land Cruisers in the parking lot at the Princess Marina Hospital than I do at Vanderbilt. Uh, and then you also see people going through dumpster dumpsters trying to get food to eat. So it's really people say, oh, well, it's a, it's a high-middle-income country. Uh, again, disproportionate sharing of the income, which we're experiencing in this country as well. So the University of Botswana uh, Medical School was founded and started in 2009 with 30 students. It was a five-year MBBS program and active learning, which we've talked about. Uh, they won't allow us to give lectures, uh, which was very dissimilar to what I was used to. Uh, but there's a lot of talking and uh, problem-based uh, uh, learning and different things like that. We do have some tutorials, but it's very, very interactive. When they started uh, the medical school a couple of three years later, they said, well, actually Maggie and I went in 2008 for a week to see if they were interested in residency programs along with our chair of surgery at Vanderbilt. Uh, and when they did start some residency programs in 2011, 2012, it was internal medicine, pediatric and adolescent medicine, family medicine, which is coupled with public health, pathology, anesthesia, which folded after two years, and emergency medicine, which over once or twice already has gone inactive. There was no program in OBGYN, and there was no program in surgery. So it, when, one, when one comes to start a, a residency program, I think that uh, uh, there are lots of things to think about. So I thought about pray. I said, pray always. <laughs> Plan, Jesus' parables about building a house and waging a war. Do we have the resources uh, uh, before we build a house? Uh, let's do some reconnaissance. Uh, people, what we learned in Nigeria, uh, there were some missionaries who did the work of ten people. There were others that catalyzed ten people to do the work and equipped them and helped grow them. And I think that's a, a model for us. Uh, we need partners and a lot of personnel and a lot of personal, and make this a team sport, and not just kind of uh, decrees coming from uh, from the top. Uh, patience, persistence, perseverance, these are all like a Venn diagram, if you will. Uh, 
I say we need, there's times to be pharisaical. Uh, my wife is incredible at dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and making the things that go forward to the people who are hopefully going to give you your accreditation uh, work for us. Getting back to the, occult, the cultural sensitivity piece, the power of nice. Uh, she was alluding to losing face. Nobody wants to lose face, whether it's in Nigeria or in the burn unit in Nashville. Uh, there's a time and a place to try to steer people in a different direction. Uh, I go through Proverbs every month and Psalms every month, and these uh, f- these four scriptures, uh, the first and the last one, talk about plan carefully what you plan to do, and the middle two say get all the advice that you can. Uh, so one of the reasons we're in the Botswana is because of this gentleman. His name is George Aziz, one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And he's been serving in various countries, whether in the Middle East or in Africa, uh, since the 1990s. But he's been in Botswana for three months every year since 2006, except for last year when he couldn't come because of COVID. He's a program director in pediatric surgery at Sick Kids University of Toronto. Uh, he was offered the chair, which he turned down because he said, if I take the chair, I won't be able to go to Botswana and to southern Africa about three months each year. But he usually spends some time in, in uh, RSA, uh, South Africa, Namibia, but most of the time he's in Botswana. And he's got uh, multiple appointments at University of Pennsylvania, at Cape Town, at Vitz, as well as his uh, home institution at Toronto. Well, he's been there for a long time, and so when they started a residency program, they looked about starting a general surgery residency program, and they actually didn't do it uh, because they looked at the breadth and the depth of the exposure of the the people that would be able to conduct that residency program and said, we're not there yet. And they actually wrote this up. You'll see some of these names. Uh, uh, Dorothea was his uh, Canadian uh, colleague. Uh, Alamayo Bedada, I will mention a lot. He's kind of my brother uh, and the main support person and the program director there. Belisi Bacanisi is another. Uh, he was actually trained in the uh, University of Toronto and came back. And then Joseph Matsumi, I'm glad to say, is now the head of the Department of Surgery. So th- this article goes back, and with, the data was collected in 2012-2013. And Ozzy has been investing himself in these folks for a decade now, and they helped found this, uh, write this paper, and then you fast forward, he approached us, Maggie and me as a team, to say, would you now, basically almost 10 years later, go and see if we can start one, if we should start one? And that's, that's been the challenge for us. So when we got there, three of these people were on faculty. Uh, Badada I mentioned, uh, he's incredible. Matsumi is a very active in research. He's brilliant. Uh, uh, and he's now the, one of the goals was to replace myself with a Matswana, and that was a Matsumi. Uh, Bakanisi represents uh, something that's very real. Uh, he, he trained in, uh, uh, he went to medical school in Zimbabwe. Uh, he did clinical officerships throughout uh, Botswana. And then Aziz said, you know, this is one of the brightest guys I've got. And he actually got him a residency at University of Toronto. And he was there for five years, plus two years of surgical oncology, plus one year of hepatobiliary surgery. So we were now getting a corpus. And then all of a sudden, as well, actually, Aziz helped Matsumi get his residency at Cape Town. He helped Bakanisi get his residency at U of T. And he helped Jinyepi get her residency at Cape Town. We now have three Matswana who are there 
Alamayu is from Ethiopia, but he took Botswana citizenship. So you got four indigenous who are now on faculty and could drive the boat, and it might be possible to get started. But they're like when we were told in, at the at the Botswana Surgical Society meeting in 2018 that they don't know how many surgeons there are in Botswana. They thought there were 110. Ten of them were Botswana. There were 30 Cubans, 30 Chinese, 25 Indians, and about 20 from other countries. And the government pays for the Chinese and the Cubans to come. They stay for a while. They leave when they want. They show up when they want to. And so it's like rent, rent a surgeon uh, kind of a gig. Uh, and it's not like they've got a, a goal. So you really the, the, let the administrators administrate. The administrators are really important. And we have some good ones. So... Uh, uh, Othoko Nkomazana is an ophthalmologist, and she's got a Ph.D., and she is our dean. Uh, our deputy dean is Doreen Masiri. She's working on her Ph.D. She's OBGYN. Japter Masunge is a deputy dean for education. He's a pediatrician. And these are really important people that could help guide and move things forward. Mosipeli Mosipeli is brilliant. He's an ID, H, uh, HIV doctor. One of the really important people is a guy named Det Prozewski, who is a South African, who is the head of the Department of Medical Education, and that Maggie works very closely with, and she's got an appointment with the Department of Medical Education there. So if you, the Phillips Exeter Academy says that the end depends on the beginning, and this is going to relate to Covey, one of his quotes, and I'm going to, Jason Fader is very important to me. I met him when I visited at, uh, in Ann Arbor. He was at St. Joseph's, and it's a long story, and I won't go into it. But if you look at the PACS, and I'm a PACS person, if you look at the PACS Daily Prayer Guide uh, under the hospital in Burundi, this is the quote that Jason had in our prayer guide for 2019-2020. When starting a program, which we were asked to do, the precedents that are set are very important. How you start really is important. As they set the culture, tone of the residency for years to come. The residents who come to start the program are even more important to getting the program off to a good start. Pray that God would bring two residents who will help develop an excellent program as well as give the faculty wisdom and setting good precedents. So we actually prayed about this a lot. The selection process, we had very, very good candidates. And so we picked two candidates. Uh, Maranatha Rani Shinso is a very active believer and spends her weekends uh, working with uh, children in different churches and different things like that. Carabo and Guaco is a very serious uh, Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and so these are the first two residents that we uh, selected. And we did elect to start a program in January of 2020. We were basically compelled to do so. And we co-started programs with psychiatry, which is a new program, and with OBGYN, which is a new program. Surgery is a new program. And we resuscitated the anesthesia program. So there were a group of us that were all moving forward somewhat uh, corporately to try to catch up. But we've got a gazillion problems, I'll just tell you. Uh, first off, they show you this beautiful hospital that was built in 2014, and it did not have a single patient until 2020. And then they only had COVID patients because they became the COVID center for the country. And they still don't do any operating work in the theaters. They have to do an emergency C-section. They do it in the bed uh, in the ICU. Uh, because it's a critical care unit with uh, some adjacent beds. So they've got this beautiful facility, got 13 ORs, 39 ICUs, and none of them were used until COVID. So my wife talks about positive COVID. I'm COVID positive. Well, we got our hospital opened partly because of COVID. 
where they do all the clinical work is Ministry of Health Hospital at Princess Marina Hospital. It opened in 1967, and it's deteriorated pretty much every five or ten years decrementally. There are four ORs for the whole country as the major referral hospital. The C-sections basically take up all the nights, and you're taking care of two patients there, so they bump everything else. So people who have peritonitis are waiting. And what's happened is that the Ministry of Health Hospital has basically become shipping and receiving center to where patients come in there. They make a lot of calls and make a lot, do a lot of paperwork, and a day or two later they may be able to get them to a private hospital, which basically drains money from the public sector into the private sector. So I'm not painting a, a glowing picture here. So what we had to do, we had to develop a proposal and there were a lot of options. Where are we going to train people? Well, Princess Marina can't do it. We can't train a competent general surgeon at Princess Marina because they can't get any OR. They don't have anesthesia. They don't have adequate ICU backup. We have very few consultants. Bacchanese was the only fully trained specialist general surgery in the entire country. One. The only one. Everybody else had had four or five years of general surgery. One person had six months or a year of learning how to do ERCPs, but not really a full fellowship. The other government hospitals, we could look at those. The private hospitals, we could look at those. But the first thing they say is, how much are you going to pay us if we take your residence and let them follow us around? Uh, I've mentioned Missouri Teaching Hospital. So we, like others and the other disciplines, it started off by sending their residents. They had four-year programs. We were recommending a five-year program since they had to write a research paper, uh, which diverts their attention from acquiring their clinical skills, quite frankly. Uh, we said uh, the other when they started the other programs, it was two and two. They'd do two years in Botswana, then they'd go to South Africa for two years. We said we need to do that as well. And so we spent time trying to find a suitable partner in South Africa, and we had three very excellent choices. Uh, so who's going to do the training? Are we going to do it at the University of Botswana faculty? Are we going to be able to use the Ministry of Health physicians and surgeons? What about the private sector? We elected to go with five years for an MED because uh, that's what they mandated. And the clinical rotations and the didactics, how are we going to pull all those off? So uh, Botswana, uh, to get an approval to even get started, we had like five major hurdles. Now, I was in the VA system for 28 years. I thought I knew something about red tape uh, and levels of bureaucracy. The VA is a piker compared to what one can encounter in various aspects of, South, of, of, of Africa. So we had to go through departmental boards, Senate, Council, Botswana Health Professions Council, Qualifications Authority, Ministry of Health, and it's still going on. We are in the process now of trying to get permission uh, through the South Africa folks. The College of Surgery of South Africa is very supportive, but then we've got to get through the Colleges of Medicine in uh, South Africa. Uh, and the goal is to have partner programs and spend part of our training in Botswana, part of our training there. It turns out, as many of you know, that resident training in uh, many parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the residents actually pay money to do a residency because the, the schools and the Ministry of Health are charging them for their MED tuition, and they, they get some salary support perhaps. Our residents, if they go to South, South Africa, they're totally self-funding. The ministry says we don't have any money, so they have to have a rich uncle or somebody, a spouse or somebody, so that's a whole other thing. Uh, so these are our partners, ONG, these people helped. The psychiatry, less, anesthesia, great help there. Alamayo Badada and uh, Maggie from uh, Department of Medical Education were critical.
So if you kind of come off of uh, Stephen Covey, I think the begin with the end in the mind. Where do we want to be in 2030? Uh, as, as the sign in the uh, beautician's office says, I am a beautician, not a magician. We're not going to turn this around in about 60, 60 months, you know. Uh, so we started out. We have our second group. We just interviewed the, the third group coming on. So this is Carabo, Ronnie, Chalisa Nami, and Tifo. And here they are in real life. Uh, and they're great folks. And we've been very blessed with these four. Uh, there's a book that I will recommend that I read decades ago, really, uh, called uh, uh, The uh, Master Plan of Evangelism. And we basically talked about that when Jesus came, he did treat everybody, teach everybody, but he picked 12 and either one of them flunked out. Uh, so I think this is a good book. It comes out of Ashbury Seminary. Festina Lenti, Make Hay Slowly. I think we need to crawl before we uh, walk, and we need to walk before we run. And uh, one of the phrases from liberation theology is that we make our path uh, by walking it. So uh, two African proverbs, most of the things that I know that count I learned in Nigeria, but one is that no condition is permanent. Uh, Just because there's bread on the shelf this week, there may not be bread on the shelf next week. And who knows tomorrow? The short answer is God, but he ain't telling. Uh, So basically... uh, we, this is a work in progress, and uh, the international Sunday school lesson this week is about uh, Samuel uh, and his mother and the situation there in the first chapter. Samuel, uh, first time she asked to have a child, it didn't happen. Sometimes you have to just work, be persistent, carry on, uh, and, and God's time with doing your part. Work as though it depends on you. Pray as though it depends on God. We learned that the first year of medical school. So uh, feel free to contact me at any time. Thank you very much. I look forward to the panel. I needed to give you this. Thanks. Thank you. So wasn't that a great panel? Uh, I'm going to ask them all to come up and sit up here. And so now it's your turn to ask questions. So... Let me set, so, let's see, let, we can take this off, which will give you the, there. Uh, I'll hold this. Can we move this one over between the three of them? Okay. Okay. I can shut down this computer. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Okay, any questions? Yes, sir. Um, Matthew Lopez, Cabrera, training program in Kenya. Um, How do you guys balance, especially on multidisciplinary rounds, the the issue of correcting someone in private, but also saying, well, this is the plan that we are going to go with? You know, like I can say in private, um, please go never, you know, that what you just suggested was malpractice or, you know, like, because you, you know, because you didn't call me 12 hours ago, you know, patient died, those kinds of things. But, you know, when you're talking about a plan, um, you know, I, I personally really, I, I find it very helpful to have my students, you know, my learners tell me what they think they, we should do, and then we talk about that, um, but I feel like it's 
especially when they're way, way off, I can't help but feel like, you know, I wonder about the honor chain thing in the group of saying, well, actually we're going to do this instead. Okay, I'll repeat the question for the recording. So the question was uh, basically how do you balance uh, talking to somebody in private and correcting them versus uh, what they say in front of patients? Is that a pretty good summary? Okay. Especially when we're saying, okay, nurse, you need to stop this medication. Yeah. Who wants to handle that? That's okay, um, I'll just order. And, and so, um, like if it was a medical student um, or a nurse or someone who suggested it, I would say, okay, what, do, what does everyone else think? Should we do this next or should we do something else? And sort of see what other things, if, if, you, get, if you hear the right answer, the right answer being the answer that you were thinking of, um, <laughs> you know, then you can sort of latch on to that. Um, Sometimes you find out, you know, there may be actually some benefit to the the conversation, um, even for you. The I, I try very hard not to re, um, take sort of my last step of last resort is well. Um, I don't think that this is the best idea for the plan for the patient today. Let's do this today, and tomorrow we'll talk about it on rounds again. And so then I can have the opportunity to speak to people one-on-one or in smaller groups about, you know, why that may or may not have been a good idea in rounds. We tend to have the benefit, though, um, because the patient may or may not be understanding, because we do teaching in English. um, So... I don't often have to think about the patient understanding what's going on. We do then, I do have someone then translate for the patient what we've been talking about, but not maybe the correction part of it. Okay. So just one comment on that. Uh, It's our mission week at our church, and we had a speaker last week who uh, had been in Costa Rica as a a teenager, family moved to Dominican Republic, he started a new school, and he said that the the first day everybody was making fun of him and what he looked like, and they had no idea that he spoke Spanish and knew everything they were saying. <laughs> so sometimes you have to be careful about it. Okay. Another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you. I think you have to see the situation. So is this like morning work rounds when you're trying to see a group of 12 or 15 patients before you get to clinic or get to the theater, or is this an afternoon where you have time to expand? So I think you've got to pick your time and your place, and you maybe say, that's really an interesting thing, and why don't we th- let's keep that on in this afternoon when we have evening rounds. Let's see if we can follow that out. I like to ask, I, I, my strategy was always to start with the youngest people and work all the way up, and usually they gave me two or three ideas I hadn't thought of, and by the time I had to say something, then I had already benefited from the input from a variety of people. Uh, so that was helpful. In the context of work rounds. Yeah, and yeah. Most of the time I'm trying to get people to stop the subtract zone for pneumonia and get them to have a start with a, a differential diagnosis for chest pain. Yeah, so I think each one of those situations, and one other thing that comes up that's related to that and everything, I was trained as a surgical oncologist, but like if I, I, take, I treat patients with esophageal cancer 
I don't treat esophageal cancer. So what's the least aggressive thing? What's the most aggressive thing? What's the via media? And then there's some intermediaries in there, and none of them work, okay? Uh, so I think that we can ask, we can bring up that discussion. What are our options, and what are the pros and cons of each one? That's just, that's one of the options, and it's on more of the more aggressive. Uh, what are what are the what are the cons of doing that? And you can bring that out and discuss that. Uh, but again, I think picking your picking your battlefield, if you will, uh, your your field of uh, discussion is a really important part of it. Okay, thank you. Any, yes. So the comment was that we have to be careful about doing a direct no, and there are other ways of doing it more indirectly. Did you want to make a comment about that, Eric? Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought it looked like you were going to speak up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I think to recognize that an indirect no is a no in, in, in these cultures. Like, you, if it doesn't feel like it's you, that doesn't mean it's, I mean, that, that's you, but that's not that. So that's just to support me, I would say. Good, thank you. Any other questions? Yes? Hi, Maureen Sloan. I'm a nurse consultant with Care International. And I train nurses in our, our hospital system. And uh, I found this uh, presentation so extremely informative and helpful. Um, the nurses in most of the countries I work in, it's just sheer memorization. And... Um, to encourage those of you that are maybe just getting involved in helping people to think critically. It really is a process. Um, the nursing process is observation. And to even help the nurses to um, understand that, that it's not just a list of things, but they have to think outside the box. And then to go from observation to assessment. Like, what does this information mean? And then, what do I do with the information? And I've been working for 10 years with the nurses in West Africa, and it's baby steps. And sometimes you take one step forward and two steps back, but it's worth the effort because it does help have a richer and more excellent community there. Thank, Thank you. Yes. I just want to say I really appreciated the comment. I think McLaughlin's did about saying how critical thinking skills can be in the culture. I mean, can be already there, but applying it. Because sometimes I think we need language that takes critical thinking out of culture. Because sometimes we inadvertently almost say, well, critical thinking is an American thing. In other words, you got all the good things and you don't, as opposed to saying critical thinking is a tool, a skill. And where do you have it? I, I thought that was really a great way to look at that. And just trying to come up with better language of how to, to deal with that issue. Yeah, I think that's a very good comment. Any? Good. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> yes. Um, 
I also wanted this. My comment kind of circles back to what you're asking about rounds and some, and even what you just said about like giving language and how important it is to have language for critical thinking. I think a lot of times our learners don't know what we're doing, um, and so our learners often need to know directly what what's going on in our minds. So like I've found that I need to like have a resident and I say I'm going to give you some feedback now for them to recognize that it's feedback. And so I think if on your rounds you had kind of some ground rules about, you know, we're, I'm not criticizing you as a person, I'm talking about the care for the patient. And I think with that, like, criticized privately is about, is something about, like, that learner, that student or that resident that, like, you might need to correct privately. But being able to talk about the patient scenario and the case in a public way because we are all learning together, right? Like I'm learning, you're learning, we're all learning together. And so having that ground rules. And like you said about like the language of the capacity for critical thinking is always there and finding ways to like bring that out. And I, I'm a verbal processor and so I prepare my residents that I'm gonna be thinking out loud right now. And that's been so helpful for them because sometimes they just weren't sure if I'm like, like thinking through or like putting data together what I'm actually doing or if I'm, I don't, I'm not really an expert, I don't know what I'm talking about. And so to prepare them with like, okay, let's do some critical thinking together out loud. And it helps them see like my thought processes of how and why I got there. And that's another way of modeling, like we talked about, of what critical thinking actually looks like. So just actually sometimes the indirect no or being indirect, but sometimes being direct helps bring everybody in together kind of on the same page of what we're doing together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, Rebecca. I think some of those things that, that bedside okay. Okay. You're, you're by the patient's bedside and you are really stuck and you don't know which way is the best. And sometimes it's it's helpful, like you said, to talk through your thought process, like, well I can see we could try this. I'm not sure it's going to work for her. We could try this other thing, and I'm also not sure it's going to work. And, and the idea that there might be more than one solution, there might not be any good solutions that we have right now, but I do think it's important not to be seen as the doctor who knows everything, but that modeling of, I'm not sure, we can work on this together, I think is really helpful in, in the critical thinking partnership as well. That can be a moment, too, for even, like, making the next plan. So, you know, you kind of come through, and if you've talked about together why you don't, um, you know, what you know, what you don't know, what your options are, you decide, okay, so we're going to go with option A, but let's recognize that if this isn't going well tomorrow, then we're going to be doing B or something like that, and everyone's kind of together, you know, then you've already planted these seeds for the next day when you follow up, and you're like, what did we say yesterday? And you have this kind of reinforcement, and you can kind of go there together as well. Yes. Um, whether whether it's been from starting a program or getting staff to collaborate or um, finding personnel, have you found yourselves in situations where you've had to compromise uh, on character or moral ethical issues just because that was the only person available? Or did you have standards where you wouldn't tolerate some moral lapse? So the question is, uh, have there been a situation where you've had to uh, compromise on moral or ethical principles? Anybody want to handle that one? 
can you, can you give an example of how, like, what kind of moral apps or, or where the connection point is between that and, and critical thinking and such, like, just to get a little more feel of what you're, I feel like you're. I guess as far as it, starting a residency program or starting something where you need lots of different personnel, indigenous or not, um, you may not have a lot of options to choose from. And so have there been contexts where you've tolerated a, yeah, a character flaw, moral lapse, whether it's from someone who's explicitly non-Christian or from a Christian that they either wish you hadn't compromised on or how to be selective versus, uh, I guess, tolerance when mm -hmm. people are a scarce resource. I think one thing that we've done is really lean heavily on our national partners. Uh, we have a medical director who's also a, a pastor, and there have been a lot of times it's, it's difficult for us from our Western perspective to come in and pass these value judgments. This person is, like, morally, you know, not appropriate for the program. We The selection process oftentimes is out of our hands. Like, we can't choose the people that we're training um, at least in our context, we, can, we don't choose the medical students, we don't choose the residents, we don't always choose the interns, but we will do our best with, um, with who has been given to us to model Christian behavior. Uh, if there is a situation that comes up with someone's behavior, oftentimes we will take that to the hospital governance instead of trying to deal with it ourselves. Um, because, I, again, I think there are a lot of pitfalls for us uh, as, as outside of their culture um, and you know, like uh, here's a here's a, a doctor who's been found to be drinking while on call, for example. Uh, pass that off to the hospital leadership, and they can make the call if it's appropriate for him to continue or not. I think it's really important to find at least one, uh, if you want to say David and Jonathan, somebody that you can talk to that knows the culture that will keep you out of trouble. I mean, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, I don't know Botswana. Uh, and I need somebody there to keep me in the middle of the road, and I empower them to try to do that as we go forward. But I think you need somebody that you can trust, that you can talk to. And fortunately, every place I've been, I've been able to find somebody that I think that I can make that relationship with. And then that way we're a team, and in the process you're basically hoping to coach them up and while they're coaching you to be more appropriate. So I think it's just not one person decreeing from where they are standing, but try to make it more of a team or a group effort. Thank you. Yes, John. I wonder if the values-based concept that you talked about, Dr. Cape, was, was along that line. Did you have any kind of personal moral part of those value-based concepts that I believe you agreed upon with the residents coming in and or faculty? Yeah. Just, so the, or you repeat the question.
and we can agree on respect, and we can agree on some of these things so that we can come back to it. Um, I think the other thing that we've come to realize um, over the years is that we have we don't have any control of any of the personnel who work with us, beside us, over us, under us, except the residents and ourselves. Um, and so there's been lots of situations that have come up um, that yeah, result in frank patient harm that we've not been able to correct in a way that maybe we would want to in our American Western standards because that is not in our realm of, um, of authority to do so. But even when we have residents who are struggling, like we had a situation that I've spoken to about before, but a resident who just every single disciplinary um, and you know, trying to get him to um, improve and setting out all these lists and things he needed to do, everything failed, and so we were ready to fire him and um, was getting ready to meet with him to tell him we were firing him from the pro program and then found out from the university president we weren't allowed to, and we still had to keep him as a resident. And then how do we work through that process? Um, so, I mean, ultimately that story had a good ending, but it was a huge learning curve for us, and so I'm not sure there's a right answer to any of this, but definitely that's one of the things that we have come back to when we face some of these difficult situations to the values that we've agreed on, at least with the residents and with our other faculty members um, that can help us through some of these situations. Actually, the there was first... I was going to make a, a comment and then a question. The, the comment was about being culturally sensitive, even if you can't be culturally competent. Um, I've done, we've, we've been doing short-term short and medium-long, medium-term, whatever that means, trips um, since 2000. And um, one of the things I would suggest for people to do that is, you know, the, the two ears, one mouth thing, so listening and watching more than you're talking. And we sometimes have that opportunity where the full-time missionaries don't because of their various responsibilities. So you learn a lot that way. We had a, a kid dying, um, and every other mother in the unit, not there's no speaking, no one told anybody to do anything. They came and they jumped right to the kid's mouth. Um, and so when I said to the missionary, why are they doing it? He didn't know. Uh, because he's not normally, and, and that's not a slight on him, just because he's not there all the time in that, in that time period. Um, but you also learn stuff, like I did a failure to thrive on pediatrician by, by training in China. And in America, we, you know, you had a pat of butter to this, you had, well, they don't use those things. So one of the residents said to me, well, that's great, but we don't have any of those products. <laughs> and so that was an opportunity to say, well, okay, what would you use to add fat? And, you know, and so then we could dialogue about that. But if I wasn't able to say, like, okay, then teach me, what would you do? You know, that, that would have been sort of a stalemate. Uh, so I think just, um, our latest was in India when you asked someone could they be pregnant, and their answer was, I've had two children. <laughs> okay, but could you be pregnant? Uh, you know, and we, we, we found out through the slide and by listening and by asking, humble enough to ask, um, they have sort of a, a peer pressure, not government like China, but a peer pressure that after you have two kids, they get a two-year-old. Um, and so when she said, I had two kids, what she was really saying was, I've already had my tubal. Uh, and, and we had no idea what she was saying until you know, we were able to ask. Um, so those were just comments on about being culturally um, 
sensitive even when we can't, we're not there long enough to be uh, culturally competent. Uh, but my question was, for instance, following up on your residence, we've had this even in the states when residents come from someplace else. As women that are in those positions, um, you know, steps you can take when your trainee is male, and the whole male-female um, dynamic of women are essentially dirt in some of these countries, and yet now you're in a position of authority over a male learner. Uh, that's a So, yeah. I would just say, once again, this boils down to individual experience and individual situations, but um, I think because of the culture, um, teachers and professors are also highly respected, um, even um, because of that, my experience has been that I've not had um, so many problems with disrespect from male residents and things like that. Yes, with male medical students, um, but once again, we don't have authority over the medical students. We only have authority over the residents. Um, but I think also just being culturally sensitive, even in those situations where I do wonder sometimes, is it a, a gender dynamic when I'm trying to give some feedback or whether or not they're listening? But that's also why we work on mixed gender teams, like because then we can um, get our partners and our colleagues and things like that to help us through some of those issues and have someone else talk to them. So. Oh, go ahead. I just want to make one a comment related to uh, language and speaking. Uh, this was on Twitter, one of my sources of information. And, uh, but it was from uh, one of our hospitals in Kenya. And the anesthesia guy was learning Swahili. And before each patient was put to sleep, he was using uh, a Swahili term that he thought sleep well during your, sur during your surgery. Uh, after several months, one of his colleagues said to him, you know what you are saying is, Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> we got we got time for one more quick question, Danny. So I have a question about um, critical thinking. So here in the West, we value critical thinking, but when I worked in Kenya, I discovered that sometimes they're so busy that they don't see the value in it, or they don't want to because it may delay their care. Like if you're seeing any patients and you really want to get to the root of the problem, it's just so much easier to say, "Oh, it's malaria, it's peptic ulcer diseases." Like, how do you make critical about the thinking, like, valuable to them? Also, I'm in a situation where it's not a formal training center, so we don't have, you know, trainees. So we have people who are there a, as a staff on salaries. So then all of a sudden I'm going there working, I'm saying, let's, let's try to improve our care. They're like, but there's no additional, you know, remuneration for us. Like, what's in it for us, you know? I said, well, we get to provide better care. But I think in a country where they finish the training, and now they're like, well, yeah, that's great, but it's just going to make us busier, you know? So how do you handle that where, as Christians, we should have the best, you know, the highest quality and have the highest caliber and provide that service? And, you know, they're all Christians, but at the same time, there's this cultural clash of the values that they have, you know. They, they value money and material things over it. Like, the only reason why they would go to a, an educational training program is so they could further their career and have a higher salary, too. So, but at the same time, I want to be able to promote that critical thinking in the curriculum that we have. Okay. You, uh, yeah, I, I can make a comment about the, the first part of that. So a friend of ours talked about the diamond-shaped algorithm of African medical decision-making, which is kind of like, you know, you start off with your problem, and you're like, well, okay, so what's our differential? It's like, well, don't forget all those, like, crazy tropical things. Oh, yeah, let's not forget the crazy tropical things. It's like, well, we actually can't test for 
a lot of those things. Oh, that's right. All right so, and we can't treat the other. Okay, well, okay, and everybody gets subtracts on the So, I, I mentioned that from the standpoint of one, it's wrong, really true. But I, I do think that when you're considering um, talking about critical thinking, especially as more than an educational exercise, when you've got a long queue of patients that you've got to get through, like some. What we would bring to the table there needs to be incredibly contextualized. I mean, to spend a whole lot of time, especially during the middle of a busy day, to be talking about things that aren't necessarily going to change what you're doing for the patient, like that can be sense and it can be, you know, so so there's, we've talked about the really good pieces to sort of bring to the table, but the implementation of it in different sections definitely has a lot to do with, you know, what differences is going to make on the ground. There are a lot of times in which critically thinking about the patient is necessary to do, not only to learn the process, but to figure out the right thing to do for the patient. But there's a lot of times in which that process would be necessary. Like, so one of the ideas in the West, right, is like, you know, what are we treating? <laughs> like, if we don't know what we're treating, you know, we feel like we're going to mistreat. Like, I have all kinds of situations where I'm not sure what I'm treating. But, like, that may be the appropriate thing to do in a setting with really limited diagnostic tools where it's not elsewhere. And so that needs to be factored into that. Uh, the second half of the question, I think, is, is discipleship, pure and simple. I mean, it's, um, yeah. And, and that can be modeled. Okay, well, uh, we're out of time. Thank you, everyone, for coming and for those who stayed. Thanks to all of you.